But Romans chapter 1 and from verse 16 and 17, and as Simon said, I am not ashamed of the gospel would be probably a good theme for what we're going to look at. And Paul says here in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jews, then for the Gentiles. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Let's just come and pray. Father, we live today in days when many of the central truths of the Christian faith are under attack, not just from a a secular world around us, but sometimes it seems from within the church that people are beginning to fall away or not hold as strongly as they once did to those key truths of our faith. Father, remind us today of those truths. And may they live in our hearts and may we give all that we have to defend them. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me begin by sharing with you a little excerpt from C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters, a masterpiece on Satan's strategies. And, And that is, there is a legend about Satan and his imps planning their strategy for attacking the world that's hearing the message of salvation. One of the demons says, I've got the plan, Master. When I get on the earth and take charge of people's thinking, I'll tell them there's no heaven. The devil responds, Ha, they'll never believe that. This book of truth is full of messages about the hope of heaven through sins forgiven. They know there's a glory yet future. On the other side of the room, another says, I've got the plan. I'll tell them there's no hell. No good, he says. Jesus, while he was on earth, talked more of hell than of heaven. They know in their hearts that their wrong will have to be taken care of in some way. They deserve nothing more than hell. One brilliant little imp in the back then stood up and said, Then I know the answer. I'll just tell them there's no hurry. And he's the one Satan chose. Now I wonder if this is particularly relevant for somebody here. Because you see here in Romans we're going to be looking at the core of the gospel. At the good news of a restored relationship with God offered to us through faith in Jesus Christ. But maybe you've been here many times before, if not in this church, in other churches, and you've heard this message many times before, and you don't really have any problems with it. You've maybe worked your way through the, the questions, the doubts that perhaps you had at one time about the gospel, but you still haven't got to the point of commitment. You haven't reached that point of actually, personally, putting your faith in Jesus Christ as your saviour. And there are all sorts of possible reasons why you're waiting, why you're hesitating, why you're taking your time. But let me just say to you, taking your time to decide, thinking things through, hesitating, can so easily become a habit. It can become 
a lifestyle. And this is a habit that only the powers of evil want to keep you in. You see, the devil doesn't mind you being interested in Jesus. And he doesn't mind you being sympathetic to Christian things. He doesn't mind that. No, because if he can keep you there and so stop you responding to the gospel, stop you making a wholehearted commitment to Jesus Christ, then the devil is happy with that. Today, you're going to hear just something of the gospel yet again. And I would just urge you, don't hesitate any longer. Make sure that any rejoicing concerning you today takes place in heaven, not in hell. So let's look then from these verses in Romans 1, verse 16 and 17. Let's look first at the heart of the gospel. That is the righteousness of God. Verse 17 it says, For in the gospel a righteousness from God is revealed. Now in Jewish thought, and this is what would be to the forefront of Paul's mind, as a Jew by background as he, he wrote these words, in Jewish thought, the fundamental root meaning of the word righteousness is straight. That God in his character is straight. That is upright, true, pure, totally good, blindingly holy. That God in his actions is straight. That is, he plays straight with his creation in that, for example, he doesn't create us with a need to know him to be truly fulfilled and then make it impossible for that need to be fulfilled. Another way in which God plays straight with his creation and his actions is that in the laws that he's given us in creation and in life in general, that these laws are consistent with the way that he made us. That these laws are not given to frustrate us but rather to protect us and to keep us from harm. These laws are given so that they might lead us and guide us into living a life that pleases God, into living a life that we were made to live, into living that life that brings us true joy. But you see, the problem comes in, in that we as men and women, we don't play straight with God. No, instead of choosing to live in righteousness, instead of choosing to walk in that straight path that he has laid out for us, we instead choose to go our own crooked way. We ignore, we disobey those laws given for our good. We rebel against God. We sin. And in so doing, we twist and distort this good creation given us. And we then live lives that are a twisted parody of God's intention for us. And so righteousness, God's righteousness then, can also refer to what it takes to get things back into the straight line. The underlying Greek word that, that we translate righteous can actually mean a punishment. So righteousness then is also about God's righteous character, that he's upright, straight, and true. It's also about God's activity, that he plays straight with his creation. But righteousness can also be about 
God's punishment. That is about God's discipline in hand in that when things get twisted out of line, then there are times when God will intervene and God will do whatever is necessary to get things back on that straight again. Now, all of these things, I believe, have a, have a part to play. They contribute something to what's meant by God's righteousness here in Romans 1, 17. But they are not the major focus. No, the focus here is that righteousness is not only about God's character, God's activity, God's punishment. It is also about, above all else, God's achievement. For you see, God, who is by character, straight, holy, perfectly good. God who gave us the potential to share in that holiness and who gave us his law to guide us into that holiness. God whose nature demands that our turning from him must be punished, which is our sin is just an integral part of us, means judgment and condemnation. This God, our God, has achieved righteousness for us through Jesus Christ. For you see, Jesus who was by nature God, Jesus who shared in God's perfect righteousness, he left heaven for our sakes. He became a man because of his great love for us. He took action on our behalf. And then on the cross, he took the punishment that should have been ours as he gave himself to pay the price of our sin, my sin, your sin. And so then because of Jesus, the barrier of our sin, that sin that once separated us from our perfect, holy God, that barrier of our twisted, distorted lives, that barrier has been removed and the way has been opened up again. The way has been made straight once again for us to come into a living, personal relationship with God. This has happened because Jesus has won righteousness. Because Jesus has achieved righteousness for us. Yes, on the cross, he took upon himself all of our unrighteousness, all of our sin, and then he offers to us as a gift, as we come to him in faith, his righteousness in return. Now the word awesome is I think much overused today along with a few other words but I tell you this is an awesome and a mind-blowing truth that as we put our faith in Christ his righteousness becomes our righteousness. That as God looks at us now he doesn't see our sin anymore. All he sees is the righteousness of Christ won for us, achieved for us by Christ's death on the cross. That's what the Bible teaches here in places like Romans 4, 24, where it talks there of those to whom God will credit righteousness for us who believe in him who raised Jesus Christ from the dead. And 2 Corinthians 5, 21, that famous, wonderful verse, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness 
of God. And all of this is looked forward to prophetically. It's there back in the Old Testament. For example, in Isaiah 61 verse 10, written 700 years before Christ, but looking forward to that day, to the coming of the Messiah, there it says, it says, My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of righteousness. That's what God has done for us in Jesus. He's covered the filthy rags of our sin and of our feeble attempts at self-righteousness. He's covered them with that robe, with the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. And what we have to do is come to him in faith. What we are called to do is by faith make that ours, that gift of God. John Stott as a summary of this righteousness from God, of God, that stands at the heart of the gospel. And this is what he says. He says, it is a righteous status which God requires if ever we are to stand before him, which he achieves through the atoning sacrifice of the cross, which he reveals in the gospel, and which he bestows freely on all who come and trust in Jesus Christ. That's what stands there at the heart of the gospel, the righteousness of God. But let's move on from the heart of the gospel to look at the shame of the gospel. The shame of the gospel. For let's be clear here, the fact that, that Paul asserts so strongly that he's not ashamed of the gospel, I believe in its, is in itself a tacit acknowledgement that he was tempted to be embarrassed, to be ashamed. And no wonder, no wonder, for you see, in the ancient world, in Paul's world, crucifixion was the most degrading, humiliating, and painful death imaginable. The person who was crucified was first flogged and then paraded along the street with a placard around their neck declaring, their crime and at that point it was open house for anyone who wanted to to jeer curse spit beat do whatever they wanted in order to humiliate the victim then they would be nailed to a cross and hung there to painfully agonizingly die in the full gaze of a depraved crowd to whom their only worth was that they provided a few hours of perverted entertainment this death was so vile, it was so humiliating that as cruel as the Roman Empire was, this form of execution could only be meted out to a very, very few, to the lowest of the low, to those guilty of the very worst crimes. In fact, it was a Roman law that no Roman citizen could be subject to crucifixion. You see, it was so cruel, so degraded, that it was felt that not even the lowliest or the worst of Romans should die like this. So you see, when men like Paul began to teach and preach that the king of the universe, the God who created the heavens and the earth, that he had come to this earth in human form and then died on a cross, well, you know, you can almost hear the 
hills of derision rolling down through the centuries. This is for the lowest of the low. And you are trying to tell us that God subjected himself to this. That God had neither the power or the wit to avoid a death like this. You know, the rest of Paul's message, the reason for the cross, the victory of the resurrection would not even probably be heard by the vast majority. It would be a case of crucified God. Switch off. That thought alone would be too much to get over. It is too far out of their frame of reference for them ever to be able to take anything else in. You see, people don't like the message of the cross. They don't like what it says about sin what it says about human need, what it says about our inability to save ourselves. They don't like what they see in the cross. Humility, humiliation, self-sacrifice, surrender, apparent weakness. People don't like it. They didn't like it in Paul's time. They don't like it now. No, they want a God. They want a religion even. That's about power and strength. That's about man's ability, man's intellect. Listen to what Paul says of his time in 1 Corinthians 22. He says, Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But for for Jews and Gentiles, you know, we could insert in there today Islam with its upsurge in popularity, with its God of power and man in his strength by his own efforts working his way to God. We could put Islam in there. And as for the Gentiles, as for the Greeks with their love of the human intellect, well, what about science as religion? The belief that now seems to be faltering perhaps, but that for a century seemed almost unconquerable. That man by reason, man by experiment and by deduction could solve all the problems of our world. You see, we face in many ways the same challenge as Paul did. Of people laughing at the apparent weakness, the lack of sophistication of our faith. That God died for our sin. And as we trust in him, we can know him in our hearts and lives now and go eternally to be with him when we die. And we face the same temptation as Paul did to be ashamed of the gospel. You see, Paul states emphatically here that he is not ashamed of the gospel. And nor should we be. First, Because of the gospel's power. Verse 16 it says, It is the power of God for salvation. It is the power of God that is able to save men and women, that is able to rescue them from alienation from God and from the prospect of eternal condemnation and bring them back into relationship with God, into a relationship that leads to blessing right now and to incalculable blessing. In the life to come. Yes Jesus. By his sacrificial death for sin on the cross. 
by his victory over death and sin, demonstrated in his resurrection, Jesus set us free from that dominating power of sin, of Satan. We can now live a new life. We can live a life with different values, different standards, with this being just a foretaste of what's to come in the life to come. The power of Jesus Christ, the power of the gospel, makes that possible. I tell you, there's a lot of power in our world today. We've never had anything near to the power of technology and weaponry, etc., available to us as we have today. But you know, at the same time, I don't think society and families and individuals have ever been as messed up and as seemingly powerless as they are today. You know, the problem is that it's only God who has the power to deal with the real problems of the human heart, the human spirit, the human mind. It's only God who can give us peace, joy, hope, and purpose that lasts for eternity, but that transforms our lives in the here and now. You know, I was reading uh, recently again one of Lee Strobel's books, God's Outrageous Claims. And in this book, he tells the story of a Chicago gang member, Ron, who at one point in his life was determined to kill members of a rival gang in revenge for an attack on a friend. And he ambushed six of them, chased a brother of one of his most hated enemies down the road, and he shot him in the back, the bullet lodging near to the liver. And the man was lying on the ground begging for his life. But with no thought of mercy, he pushed the gun into his face and pulled the trigger. But his gun was empty and he had to run from the police. A warrant was then put out for his arrest and he knew that with the record that he had, he was facing 20 years in jail. So he ran away with his girlfriend to Oregon. And he got a job in a garage. And in that garage, his workmates were happened to be Christians. And eventually, because of their influence, he and his girlfriend became Christians. And so as Christ and his power came into their lives, their values, their standards, their lifestyle began to change. They married, had a child. Ron became a model employee, he became an active church member and a well-respected member of the community. But something kept gnawing away at him. That though he was reconciled to God, he wasn't reconciled with society. There was still a warrant out for his arrest. And although the police had stopped looking for him and he could possibly have spent the, the rest of his life in Oregon without getting caught, he felt, that the only honest thing to do, the only God-honoring thing to do, would, to be, would be to give himself up and face the possibility of 20 years in prison without his family. You know, that's what he did. And Lee Strobel then, an atheistic reporter on the famous Chicago Tribune, he was there when Ron went into court and shared his story with the judge. This is what he says of the effect this had of him. He says, I was blown away. This was not cosmetic Christianity. 
When somebody takes a costly step like that, you know it must be prompted by a faith that has radically transformed him or her from deep inside. And that attracted me towards Christianity. At least I want to judge her a degree of mercy on Ron. But you see, there is power in Christianity. There is power in the gospel. There's power that's not found anywhere else. I mean, you tell me, or can you tell me, of any atheist whose atheism has given them hope and joy and purpose. And hope also, unlike that, which is found in any other religion. Because the power of the gospel is power that expresses itself in the ability to walk in humility and love in sacrificial service. This is the power of the gospel, and it's the power that no other religion provides. Power that sets us free from the self-serving, posturing pride of man. This is the power of the gospel. And it enables us to live out something of the life of heaven in the here and now. You know, I know I've shared this before more than once, but, but when I was in Peterhead, the church there sponsored a, a church and a school in the slums of Mumbai. And as a result of that, I visited India on a number of occasions at one point in my life and I, I taught the Bible while I was there but you know what I soon found out that there wasn't much that I could teach many Indian Christians about the practical reality of living out the Christian life but in one prayer letter our partner church sent out to us they shared with us how a new school building that we'd actually provided the money to build and that they just built how this had been knocked down immediately by corrupt government officials because they refused to pay the customary bribes. And at the end of this letter, they, they shared that they were concerned about the impact of this on the witness, that people in the community around might think because of this that the Christian God is a weak God. You know, I contacted them later. But how I wish I could have been with them to reassure them. But I believe they need have no fear. For God's power was seen in the way they responded, in the way God enabled them to respond, in the way that they accepted what happened without retaliation, in the way that they cleared away the rubble without complaint, in the way they kept the materials to rebuild later, which they actually did in the way that they were able to just keep on loving and serving even those who abused them. In this, God's power was seen. For only God and only the power of the gospel can enable men and women to live like this. And if I could have shared a verse with them, I think it would have been the Lord's word to Paul when he was studying with his weakness, his thorn in the flesh. God's word to him. 2 Corinthians 12, 8 and 9. Three times Paul says, I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. The other reason I believe why Paul was not ashamed of the gospel is also because of its universal appeal. Because, as he says, it is for everyone who believes. And again, there is no faith on this earth 
like the Christian faith. No faith. For you don't have to reach a certain standard before you can become a Christian. You don't have to be part of a certain race or class. There's no caste system, no priestly system. There's no sexual preference in Christianity. No, rather, as has so often been said, the ground around the cross is level ground. We are all of equal value in God's sight. And again, the, the precious nature of this has never struck me with such force as it did in India. Because as I shared the gospel in churches in the slums of Mumbai, in other city slums, in Delhi, and sometimes very remote village churches, invariably churches that were filled with Dalits, with the untouchables, who in Hinduism are not even allowed to worship God. They're seen as unworthy. Who are inbred from birth with the understanding rooted in them that they are worthless to God. And you know, as I shared with them, the message of the gospel, that to the contrary, they are precious in God's sight. That he loved them so much that he gave himself in Christ to pay for their sin. That all they have to do is put their faith in Jesus Christ and then they can know God as Father now and for all eternity. As I shared this with them and told them that in Christ they are our brothers and sisters, that we are all part of the one heavenly family. I tell you, I could see the joy in their faces. You really could feel them just responding to this, being set free. There is no other message in this world like the gospel of Jesus Christ. No other message with the appeal of the gospel, with the power of the gospel. So we, with Paul, should be able to say, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Well, we've looked at the heart of the gospel, at the shame of the gospel. Let's finish briefly by looking at the outworking of the gospel. That is that it is by faith from first to last. Or in some versions, it says it's from faith to faith. Now, there are a few different understandings of this. But I personally believe the best, the most likely, and the one I opt for, is that the Christian faith begins by faith. It begins by our putting our faith in Jesus. And then, it's supposed to be worked out, it's supposed to be lived out, in a life of faith. That is, as we then live out a life that demonstrates the values, characteristics, and standards of faith, and above all, of him who our faith is in, the Lord Jesus Christ. So you see, although there's nothing we can do, nothing we have to do to win salvation, to make salvation ours, because it's all been done in Jesus. We don't have to reach a certain moral standard. We don't have to have our life and all its problems worked out before we come to God. No, we simply come as we are. For God accepts us and loves us just as we are. Yet, if our faith is true, if our faith is about a true, life-giving, eternal, spiritual encounter with God, then that will show itself. Then that will be worked out as we live a life of faith, a life consistent with our faith. 
So I say to you today, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. A gospel of righteousness. A gospel of power. A gospel for all. A gospel of life-transforming faith. This is Paul's gospel. This is our gospel. This is the gospel of Christian faith. How can we ever reject? How can we ever be ashamed of such a gospel? So I say again to you, respond to this gospel. Live your life for the sake of this gospel. For there is nothing more precious, more wonderful on this earth than this gospel. Let's come and pray together. Father, we want to thank you for the gospel that stands at the heart of Christian faith. Lord, so often we get caught up in different things, we get distracted, or the gospel is distorted by false teaching. But Father, we pray, help us to see, help us to believe, and help us to live for the sake of this gospel. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.